This episode, you meet Roger Yoxi, retired lieutenant colonel, uh, fighter pilot, combat vet. He uh, he grew up in upstate New York, went to the academy because that was his dream. Pulled off the uh, pilot qualification of a of story of a lifetime. I'm very impressed with this story. He uh, found himself flying in Iceland and getting some traps in because of weather and airplanes. Uh, also flew in Germany, got, got a very interesting Cold War story about traveling to Berlin uh, and served in Desert Storm. He, uh, his, his civilian career after the Air Force was as a United Airlines pilot. I hope you'll enjoy this. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, th- thanks for being part of this. Well, I don't know if I will provide anything worthwhile, but I'm glad to try. <laughs> well, the, nobody ever says, though, though everybody says they're kind of on the fence on this thing, but we, we, as long as we have a good time, I think that's the important deal. Yeah. So I, I you know, I always have the, the first question is, you know, what message you want to leave for the, uh, the uh, incoming class, the current cadets, the recent grads and the old goats. And in, but in your case, I wanted to also throw in there, uh, um, you had another guy in the, in our class that had a name almost exactly like yours, and you said the other day that you guys never got confused and never ran into each other. How weird is that, do you think? Well, you know, I don't think it was um, that weird, and it kind of goes along with the um, with my last name. It's not a correct spelling, and I, I would assume that perhaps our classmate name was also incorrectly spelled so <laughs> i grew up uh, in i was born in western new york moved to northern uh north of syracuse near canada basically and uh so there are a lot of people where we moved to in lowville that uh, their last name was yancey y-a-n-t-z-i or yancey y-a-n-c-e-y so most of the people in that town assumed i was one of them oh my goodness so, which not a big deal, but, you know, so there was that confusion growing up. And it, the reality is my last name should have been spelt with a J and uh, probably had a T instead of an H. <laughs> okay. um, and, but anyways, it's it's most likely Hungarian. Hard to prove because before they left Europe, they spent uh, several years in Alsace. So we can get we can get that far back, and but getting beyond that's difficult. So so I guess short answer is not it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't that surprising. I don't know how Dave felt about it, assuming <laughs> my memory is correct, and that was indeed his first name. But um, yeah, I, I don't. We never talked about it. <laughs> we kind of, well, I think we kind of shared a you know raise our eyebrows kind of situation. That's about it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I, for those of you that don't know, we have another guy in our class named Dave Yout. And, and Roger and Dave have the same first five letters of their last name. And Roger has this ZY at the end of his. So that makes it very interesting when you're lined up alphabetically somewhere. But Przbolowski still, still has more consonants than I do. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, first first eight letters are consonants. That, that, <laughs> I'm record. <laughs> Well, so what is your message to the uh, to the folks? So my message to the class of 26 would be, I think what was instilled upon us or drilled into us as in BCT was teamwork. And, and I think our class to in my 
estimation has an extreme is extremely uh, unified uh, and close and tight even after all these years because of the the lessons that we learned in BCT and then follow in the following four years working together makes all the difference and I'd say that same attitude and um, course led to um, success throughout uh, in anything that I saw in the Air Force the best Desert Storm as an example it was a team team mission not only within the Air Force but a team mission between the Army the Air Force the Navy and the Marines now I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you real quickly what do you think our environment at the time might have forged that stronger than if we'd gone into a different time and that, and the environment meaning the uh, anti-military theme in the country and the ending of the draft and the fact that we lost 40% of our class. I think absolutely it did. And I think, you know, I give credit to uh, the class of 73, as I think the class of 79 gives us a great deal of credit for, for their, what they consider uh, themselves a strong class. And, and there's been certainly a great number of great guys in, in that class too. But um, yes, Going through, as, as you can recollect, marching on and having beer cans thrown at us, marching out of football games, yeah. uh, having beer cans thrown at us and uh, going up to Boulder and driving in a bus through signs of, of eh, basically hatred um, yeah. and distrust in the military. It was a bit, um, I think it, you're, you said it well, we, it forged, it helped forge a stronger bond because it was just another hurdle we had to had to go through together. We had yeah, another event that we had to deal with. Believe it or not, it, it seemed like Air Force was one of the safer places for us to be. <laughs> yeah, well, it, we were, it was probably better than being in the rice paddies of Vietnam, that's for sure. Well, definitely, but I'm thinking even outside Colorado Springs or, you know, hanging around, hanging around the zoo was safer for us than going anywhere else in the country. Yeah. And I still recall a moderate amount. I wouldn't say it was probably even less than moderate. There were occasions going down to, you know, going downtown where there's always some, there's one or two guys that want to sling crap at you. Yeah. Um, and obviously the right thing to do is just try not to get involved. So, so, so you mentioned you, you spent most of your childhood in New York. Is that, is that where you grew up? In the state of New York. Yes. I, I was born in Western New York, about 40 miles southeast of Buffalo, okay. and finished second grade there, and then third through uh, through high school, all the way through high school, up in a town called Lowville, which is about 90 miles north of Syracuse, up in the Black River Valley, the okay. foothills of the Adirondacks. And so you got to know how, how what feet of snow are all about. In both in both locations, where lake effect snow, uh, Western New York, of course, from Lake Erie, and Northern New York from Lake Ontario. My goodness! So, so what got you to sunny Colorado? <laughs> well, Air Force Academy. What was that? How was that decision? I was one of those strange young men who my dad took me to um, a World War II air show. You know, they had. Uh, P-51, a P-47, they had a B-25 uh, doing flybys at a little field uh, uh, north of Syracuse. He and my neighbor across the street. My dad was in the Army Air Corps. But by the time I was in 
second or third grade, I was already reading books about, I go to the library and my favorite genre was World War II fighter pilots. Yeah. So at about second grade, I had an aunt who had a hair salon and she lived in town. We lived out in Western New York and I, we lived out in the country. So I had the option of walking to her house after school instead of getting on the bus if I, you know, if I had a note from mom and dad. So one day I remember going to her house and um, she always had lots of magazines. So I pick up magazines. I remember laying on the living room floor, flipping through a magazine. There was a two page, you know, uh, advertisement. And it was an F-106 with Superman climbing a ladder. (laughs) And it said, you don't have to be Superman to go to the United States Air Force Academy, but it wouldn't hurt. (laughs) And I said, and I said, well, I want to fly that airplane. And so here we go. And I'm reading all these books. And when I was in seventh grade, we took a family trip with a camper out to Colorado. And of course the, my mom and dad being the brilliant people they were, they wanted me to go see the Air Force Academy, see what it was like, see if my, uh, from that point on, that's all I talked about. I just want to go to the Air Force Academy. So that was, I, I, and, but my primary goal in going to the Air Force Academy, well, I had two of them. I wanted to do alpine ski racing. (laughs) Okay. Because I grew up real close to a, a local ski area. And I want to fly fighters. Mostly I want to fly fighters, but uh, you probably don't remember or didn't know when we were freshmen, they still had an Alpine ski team at the Academy, but it was being disbanded. So they, they existed. Uh, the class 73 was the last senior class that they had. They had the team. They didn't let any freshmen on the team. Uh, bummer. I know, I know I was on the ski club, you know, cause that was. Cheap yeah, I mean, so that was the next yeah. best thing. I joined the ski club and went skiing lots. So- so you show up in, in the Sea Springs, summer '72. How how did that transition work for you? You know, it it like I think most of us, it was uh, frightening. Is the wrong word. It was. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It works for me. <laughs> it, it it was a change. You know, I thought I like most eighteen year olds. I was pretty squared away. And I realized pretty quickly that, uh, well, I remember going, getting uh, off the airplane and meeting a couple other guys and going to stay in a hotel. And the next morning, get on a bus and they take us to the uh, to the ramp, which I guess I don't know the name of it anymore. <laughs> it used to be bring me, ba- to the bring me men ramp, right? Yeah, but, the base base of the ramp, I guess, is all we call it. Yeah. yeah so, anyways. Then, then, so it was, uh, I just, I knew I loved every time I got a chance to look at the Rampart Range and the Academy itself, it was just such a cool, um, feeling to be able to be part of it. Um, (laughs) at the same time, uh, I just wanted to survive that first summer for sure. It's not Um, that cool when you're doing a million squat thrusts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah they're all probably good for me but yeah no i, I was just curious because i know uh, uh everybody tells you oh, it's gonna be hard and all this stuff and then you don't realize how hard <laughs> yeah so you got the combination of a little bit of homesickness uh and a lot of pressure you know oh, yeah homesickness altitude and people yelling at you that those are the three but 
those are the three that got me pretty well. So, so what, where, where'd you go for Dooley year? Dooley year as in the uh, Grim Reapers in 31st squadron. Okay. How are they? That was awesome. It was a, a great group of guys from BCT. Um, let's see, Jeff Brown, Ray Santee, uh, crap, Joe Drew, <laughs> like I'm running out of names, but I I have faces, but names I should I probably should have gotten a book out so I yeah, could go through. No, baby, that's all right. Good, good group of guys. Uh, I absolutely um, felt blessed to be in that team, you know. And it was a good squadron. Uh, they had some uh, excellent leadership, I thought. Um, so, and then uh, then you went up. Uh, I went to, from there to. Okay. Yeah, I went from the Grim Reapers to the 28th Squadron. Okay. Became a member of the Un-Squadron. That was kind of their <laughs> their goal was to be un-everything when I was a sophomore, I think. But And then when I was a senior, we were Honor Squadron. So Really? So what was Un-Squadron? What was that, what was that all about? Did they didn't want to do anything? They didn't want to participate? No, they didn't want to be – they wanted to do – everything to the best of their ability, but not by being uh, absolute military drones. Okay. So, so which it wasn't a bad thing, you know? So they always did even sophomore, all three years were typically uh, did very well academically and uh, athletically uh, sophomore and junior, not so much. So, militarily and then we had a change in aocs uh, started off our first sammy or something our first surprise inspection the group aoc thought the squadron was the best in the group um so it's like oh we're kind of on a roll here wow. one mar- marching to meals accidentally but uh so <laughs> then as first season we kind of got together and said well we are clearly not responsible for this. So it's uh, the juniors and the sophomores that are making this happen. So we got together with them and suggested that, you know, we're not sure exactly what you guys are doing, but if you can continue to do it without, you know, being obnoxious about it, we're, we're all behind you. So (laughs) we gave them the, so I don't think, you know, most of my classmates, we probably we we said oh yeah we were first season we were on a squadron and they didn't do it after that so it must have been us <laughs> maybe not but anyway it was teamwork it was teamwork again yeah so you guys you guys won the uh, the prize for the number one squadron right yep we did that's cool yeah we 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 never got close to any of that stuff in my squadrons <laughs> we we were going for the uh, the most entertaining squadron I think there you go. <laughs> So what the, did you have any uh, significant summer stuff? Summer stuff. Let's see. End of the first year, I did soaring. That was that was significant and fun and, and awesome. Uh, then sophomore year, I didn't make the cut for UDT, but I did. I was able to do uh, uh, four ninety, so I got to free fall. Okay, so that was cool. Um, and third uh, lieutenant? any third lieutenant anywhere? Yeah, third lieutenant. I went to DC and got to fly, uh, you know, on one of the 
I don't know, it was 7.57, I went to uh, shape. Well, so we flew to Brussels. So I had a week, uh, like four or five days in Brussels, which was kind of cool because I had been an exchange student for two months, the summer between my junior and senior year in high school. So I got to link up with my, my Belgian family. And that was really neat. So you'd done a, a exchange thing in Belgium? Yes. So did you speak French or Flemish? French. Okay. I just, just, I went to a movie once in Belgium and they ran the subtitles on both sides of the screen. I go, what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> or top yeah. and bottom, I guess, of the screen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Didn't, I didn't know there was such a thing as Flemish until I went over there. Yeah. It's an interesting situation, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so uh, did you ever think of quitting? And that's sort of, but not really. I, I think that the closest would have been, you know, sophomore year. Do I, am I going to come back? Um, yeah. From, from this summer. And I still, my dream hadn't changed. So I wasn't enthralled with, with everything. You know, I was probably, I was like most of us when we graduated and, went out whichever gate on our way to where we were going, uh, looked in a river mirror and said, salute and said, see ya. Never Long again. <laughs> Never again. But I think I went, let's see, 10 years later. I, yeah. I, I flew back from Germany for the 10 year reunion. So. Wow. Have, you, go been other, have you been to other ones? Yeah. I, I think I did the 10th, the 20th and, Oh, since then, I've probably made most of them, I think. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think the more distance you put between the place, it's okay to go back. I, I still get a little cranky at how much they charge for everything, but that's that's me being Scottish. Yeah, yeah. or me being German. Yeah, I feel the same. It would be very cheap. Yeah, I, just, I, I kind of cringe when they tell me how much it costs to get, get a buffet food thing or whatever. Um all right, so you made it through the four years you graduated and you got to go to pilot training. I did. That's another long story, but yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Tell it. There was an ophthalmologist, a retired lieutenant colonel in Colorado Springs named Dr. Fixit, F-I-X-O-T, <laughs> and he had a grant from the Department of Defense to pursue uh, radial keratology, basically flat hard contact lenses to flatten your, your eye, reshape your eyeball to um, adjust your vision. So when I got into the academy, I was not NAV qualified. Mm. Um, see, how can I shorten this? By senior year, I passed the eye exam in April, ran up to the comm shop with my piece of paper and, and got signed up for pilot training. Oh. And what yeah. enabled me to do that was two things. Doctor A, Doctor Fix It. Uh, B, uh, being a pain in the ass. And C, because <laughs> uh, what I mean is, I would go starting in uh, November. I was a weekly visitor to the vision shop to take an eye exam. And the colonel that was in charge, when he saw me walking in, he personally took charge of testing me because he knew I'd memorized all the charts. Okay. So, he, so he would throw up another one and, shit, I didn't memorize that one yet. 
So <laughs> he would along he would trick me. So he uh, in um, April of our senior year, he was going on vacation for two weeks. So he took me aside a week before he left and said, "Hey, there's going to be a reserve colonel in here running the shop while I'm gone." And he's, you know, one of those really nice, easygoing guys. And I'm not going to tell him about you. So if you come in and you want to test, you make sure you demand that he does your, he does your screening. Wow. So I, I followed his advice. And the guy said was, what was that? And the other key is when you're saying out the letters, you got to remember which one you, you, you called each of them. So when he says, what? what was that second to the last letter? And I remember calling it a P. So I quickly said F because if it wasn't a P, it was probably an F. But, uh, <laughs> okay. And he goes, you're good. So <laughs> I got my paperwork. I ran up and went pile trading. And how did you come up with that, that theory or that scheme to do that every, every week? Uh, someone suggested that uh, if I keep trying, maybe some will have mercy. They'll get tired okay. of seeing me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd rather have good to look at, so they won't see me again every time. So there, there you have it. But that's, no, that's a great, great headboard, great thing. <laughs> so it worked out, and then we got to Vance Air Force Base, and Chris Milodragovich, who was a captain on our football team and a fullback, if you remember, and had multiple screws and and bones re, uh, screwed together. We got on day one, uh, the chief master sergeant in charge over at the clinic comes in and goes, I know this is an academy class and probably half of you guys are not truly medically qualified. I've picked three of you to uh, give a full exam to because I think you probably shouldn't be here. And Milo and I were two of the three. I can't remember who the third guy was. <laughs> so we had to go and go do a physical. So. And, you we, and the good news is we both managed to sneak through, so or pass. Oh my goodness! And then uh, any? Uh, oh, I forgot to ask. Did you have any uh, accolades while you were a cadet? I <laughs> uh, see. Most likely, no. Uh, no, I don't think of. <laughs> I can't think of any anything. The list or the or the comms list or any of that stuff. Oh yeah, I was on the soups list. Um, I think all every semester except first semester of my sophomore year, the AOC takes me in and says, "Well, if you hadn't had a CDB, you wouldn't you'd be on the soups list because all of the upperclassmen and your classmates rated you really high." But I I canned it because you've had a um, CDB. And I said, uh, "Excuse me, sir, I have not had a CDB." He goes, "Well, you hang around with the wrong people, and they've had CDBs." I said. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you, you buried the lead if you if you had a CDB. Okay, so you never had one, but he thought you were around the guys. You uh, I never had one. I think I marched a total of maybe eight tours because I got a eight and four for something, and uh, or I don't know. I had four tours, and I went out there, and Jamie Blissett was a guy in charge, and he didn't like my shoe shine, so I got four more. I, I was out there uh, one fall and there was no way I was going to not keep getting tours every time I went out there. Cause I couldn't get from the new dorm to the old dorm to, <laughs> and stay clean. And so I, thank God I finally started snowing and I was able to burn them off as, as confinements. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Saved. <laughs> Saved. Um, 
All right. So, so, and then pilot training from, uh, was in Vance, right? Yeah. Went to Vance, came a T38 first assignment IP. Yeah. They liked you so much. They kept you around. Yeah. And then they liked you so much. They sent you to Iceland. Well, they sent me to FORTU and I volunteered to go to Iceland because I was, had been recently widowed and I figured I was the better choice to go up there. I didn't have any attachments. Okay. So you, you went to, uh, Iceland to clear your head basically and get your master's in management. Yep, that was it. Okay, and then from there you went to Germany. True. <laughs> so, what was the flying in Iceland like? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the is being a fighter pilot perspective, it stunk. Um, for trying not to use the other word, but uh, with three bags of gas because we were intercepting Russian bears and Russian, any other kind of Russian strategic bomber that might approach the Aedes or enter it. Okay. At that time, it was obviously, uh, the Cold War was uh, right, uh, was pretty hot. Um, the Greenland Iceland Gap was hot with all the submarines playing their games, and the Russian and American uh, naval airplanes trying to track submarines were prevalent. Uh, Russian bear foxtrots had uh, magnetic anomaly detectors like our P3s did, and they dropped sauna buoys and, and tried to track subs. And our job was to go track them down and keep track of them. And But frequent, more frequently, it was also uh, the bears on their way to Cuba, which usually there were two a week that would, you know, two would go down and two would come back, and we'd catch them going back and forth. And I happened to be fortunate enough to be to intercept um, a badger, a pair of badgers, and a pair of bison. So I kind of was. I got when I got there. The, they have a deal where you, we sat alert. Uh, so it was basically um, three minute alert to launch, and uh, <laughs> is the so the guy who hadn't set who had did not have yet receive a bear um intercept was at his cherry so until you get your cherry popped when you uh, intercepted yeah. a bear yeah so i went on alert with the sink cherry uh who was a major who had been there like he was on a two-year tour and i think he was in an, into his second year because he went up there accompanied with his wife um so uh, when I, bruce and i launched and so we broke his cherry and my cherry at the same time. So I avoided the whole cherry uh, carrying help or share, you know, the visor on the helmet with a cherry on and all that kind of stuff. Cause <laughs> I came back and had a, I had a bear on my helmet, but um, so that I was kind of became uh, the, the bear magnet. Everybody wanted to sit alert with me. Okay. It seemed like every time I was on alert, we'd launch and, and we'd get something. Now I'm curious, was I'm sure the weather was a factor quite a bit, right? The only place in the world that I'm aware of, and I, so that doesn't mean much because I'm not aware of very much. But <laughs> as far as I know, it's the only place in the world the United States Air Force would launch an airplane knowing that it would have to do an approach and trap to land. Okay. Unlike the Navy, which you got, you did that all the time. So Every, yeah, we had the traps. <laughs> <laughs> no, how, many, how many traps do you end up getting in the Air Force? Well, in Iceland, and they were all in Iceland. Uh, probably four. Okay, so four. That, 
That's and one day I was supposed to be doing it and um, my hydraulic system failed. My two way hydraulic failed and I, uh, I was lucky. We were lucky not to go sailing off the other end of the runway because it was, uh, it'd been uh, freezing rain for a while. So that was the reason we were supposed to take it that day. But my hook had a flat spot on the roller. So as soon as I saw the utility hy hydraulic needle drop and I slammed the the hook lever down but unfortunately it didn't roll off it when they later found out that so we tried uh, an approach where we bounced hard did a hard slam on the runway to see if that would release the hook it didn't <laughs> uh, so we came around saying okay just uh of course that we didn't have utility hydraulics was a primary feed for the brakes oh, we still had one one application so we got right to the end of the runway and we're kind of going sideways but didn't go off into the lava rocks oh goodness that that's good that was that was exciting i'll bet i'll bet we were able to taxi back to the uh, line and everything or did they have to you know they came out and towed us back because yeah. we oh, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't break and differential braking and stuff and it was it was pretty slick oh wow so uh, I guess so. Germany must have been a much more pleasant experience. Much more like flying a fighter. Um, had to go to Spain uh, for a month every six months in order to complete training requirements as far as uh, range work uh, and so on. Because typically, as you know, and it, you could argue that the weather in Iceland may have been better than the weather in Germany, but um, the ranges in Germany were frequently socked in. Yeah. And and they're postage stamps, so you can't really muck around and not know where you are and, and sling a BDU just for grins because it's going to go through somebody's roof. Um, so yeah, this, you know, this was all Western Germany back then. There, there was no East. There was no full Germany. That's right. It's all Western Germany. Yeah, we had the Fine, you know, yeah. yep, had to deal with uh, the buffer zone, all that kind of fun stuff. Did you Which, ever fly in the Berlin? Did I ever do what? Fly in the Berlin? Uh, no, uh, we couldn't. Well, I I went to Berlin. They had uh, one of the deals where well, you're assigned there was at some point you're supposed to get a trip to Berlin. So it was, but you went on the troop train. So okay. I went to Berlin. Sandy and I went to Berlin on the troop train. So <laughs> that was that an adventure? It was a true adventure, you know to go through checkpoint charlie and just the glaring difference between walking from west berlin and east berlin it's like going from uh, from uh i don't know from the rich part of the city to the slums i guess i don't know and i never grew up in a city so i'm not that wasn't that familiar from to see those kind of differences but you can still see there were still bullet holes in buildings um, and it, the East Germans were all very friendly. They, of course, um, had all kinds of tourist activity set up just for our arrival, you know, where we could buy East German uh, binoculars and cameras and things like that. So they could make a, make, make a penny off of us. Because it was, you know, because of the exchange, it was really cheap. Yeah, yeah. So you actually, as an Air Force officer, you got to go into uh, the Soviet the held east germany right wow so that was that was impressive you know they are guys following you around all the time oh yeah but. oh yeah well and then and if i read this right then you went to become uh, associate with the army 
<laughs> I did uh, 18 months as an air liaison officer with the third grade of the first armored division in well, Bomberg, Germany. They liked you and they gave you a medal, right? Oh, sure. Everybody gets a medal, right? <laughs> I <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was um, fortunate. I had this young captain. I was a, I'd just been selected a major. I first got there and pinned on you. I think I pinned on two months after I got there. Um, this young captain named Robin Rand, who ended up being a four-star general, class wow. of 70, class of 79, just a truly great human being. So he ran the shop and I pretended to be in charge. Huh? Sort of, but now, yeah. so <laughs> I, I figure I wrote a couple OERs on her. So on him, so he made four stars. So I must not have been too terrible of an OER writer. There you go. Yeah, well, but, you... And, and the reality is, no, he's just that great a guy. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, and I'm just curious, what did, what did an air liaison guy do with the third brigade? Okay. So there was three battalions. Uh, two of them were infantry and one of them was uh, tanks. And our job was to in, we were right, we're in Bomberg, we're right next to Czech border. So if the Soviet hordes came rolling across, we were the first line of contact. So our job would have been to call in airstrikes if we weren't rolled over in the first, before we got a chance to make a radio call. But um, so while I was there, when I got there, we had Jeeps with about, oh, almost a million dollars worth of communications equipment in each Jeep. And we transitioned to the Humvee, and Rob and I oversaw that equipment change as well as upgrade. And we had each, um, each of the infantry squadrons loaned us because we really weren't that involved with the um, – with the M1 guys, uh, each of the infantry squadrons had an APC assigned to us. So we had armored personnel carriers, and we upgraded those with new Comcos. So we oversaw a, quite a bit of money change in equipment. So, and my predecessor, Robin, and, and my predecessor, the guy who was there before us, was a younger captain, didn't want to be there, had an attitude and stuck his nose and thumb up at the army whenever he could. If he went out on uh, maneuvers with him, he would stay for 12 hours and then leave. Rob and I made a point of being there, both of us in the top. One of us was always present in the TOC, the um, operations center, tactical operations center, uh, all for 24 hours. So, and the colonel just thought we were awesome. Uh, he wanted me to stay and <laughs> forever. The army, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I ain't having it. But uh, so that was an experience. But it was a means to an end. It got me to, into the F-16. I was going to say. So then you go back to uh, Sean. You you did the transition, right? Yeah. Yep. Went to Luke. Transitioned into the F-16. Uh, trained at Luke, and then went to Shaw. Yep. And so what Shaw's in South Carolina, is that right? Yeah. Yes, Sumter, South Carolina. Okay. So uh, that was just normal ops until the training command got a hold of you. Mm, yeah, well, yeah, it was normal ops. We went to Desert Storm from there. Oh, okay. So it was abnormal ops. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it was a great, great place to be there. Great, you know, and 
a lot of good terrain. Go, we could go air to air. wasn't too far to get out to the to the beach and go over water for air to air. Uh, a lot of good ranges go down to Townsend Range, which was off of Fort Jackson. Um, there, there's a range right off the end of the runway. Uh, it was a we had great leadership. Uh, General Eberhardt um, was the wing commander. General Horner was the Ninth Air Force commander. Headquarters Ninth Air Force is there, so I ended up being one of his IPs. So it was it was interesting. It was fun. Okay, so your Shaw assignment included Desert Storm, and that was uh, quite the adventure. I bet it when was. Did, when did you have head over to? Uh... We were the we were the first air to ground guys that got there. Langley were the first guys that that went. They went, I think, on the seventh of August. We went on the ninth. Our sister squadron left on the eighth, and we left on the eighth. So, a squadron commander of the sister squadron. Uh, chalked my jet when I got to uh, El Dafra, which is just outside of Abu Dhabi in the UAE. Okay. And what uh, what kind of condition was that? Where, where'd you stay? What what was that like? First night we slept in a hangar. It was 110 degrees outside. But it was a dry heat. It's all good. Yeah, it's a dry sweat, right? <laughs> Actually, it wasn't. It's humid in the UAE someplace. But anyway, so we slept in a hangar the first night on top of pallets and stuff. Uh, there was at the time there was still an effort to maybe move us into a hotel down in the, in Abu Dhabi and bus us back and forth, which would have been a thirty to forty minute bus ride depending on how many camels you got behind. Um, and eventually, the State Department decided it was too big of a threat to have us in a in an uh, Arab city, so yeah. we stayed on base. So the second night, we all moved into like um, well. There was one, almost a whole squadron's worth of guys spread around on cots in a big room. Uh, we got some pictures of that. But then uh, I th- eventually, our, for, for about two or three weeks, we the uh, United Arab Emirates had their equivalent of an Air Force Academy slash flight training school based at El Dafra. And they had just built new dorms for that. Wow. So we had, they had rooms that were built to hold two people. We typically had four or five people in a room. Um, and so that's, we stayed there for, yeah, I don't know, it seems like a week or two. And then eventually they built a tent city uh, just outside the fence of the actual airfield. And we had, um, you know, the Japanese ended up, you know, providing vans and stuff. We rode the vans back and forth to, we spent most of our time uh, at the, it had a building that was given to us as an op center there on the base. Now, did you uh, Next uh, to the understand, understand talking to Greg a little bit, you guys had the triple cycle missions, is that right? Yeah, we did some of those where we would take off with um, just a center line bag or maybe not even just clean with a an ECM pod and four CBUs or four 2,000 pounders and two A9s. And we take off behind a tanker. Tanker, tanker take off first. We catch them, uh, refuel, go up, drop bombs, land at uh, a base just across the border back into Saudi Arabia, get rearmed and refueled. We would uh, basically initially we would hot pit uh and then it would be a hot arming Mm. um which we practice in nato 
uh, but anyway, so we actually did that. Uh, and then when the scud started flying, sometimes the hot stuff didn't work so much. You had to shut down, jump out of the airplane and put on all your chem gear. Mm. So that was, uh, less fun, but anyways, we did that a couple of times. Yeah. That, so you would take off from there, go drop your weapons, come land again, get rearmed again, go up, drop, you get a hold of AB triple C on your, you know, approaching the end of the runway and see what they had for you and take off and go initially go to a holding point until they suggested, no, go here, go there. And then, so after the second landing and rearming and refueling, um, we drop our weapons and then head south, pick up a tanker and go home which was at the end of one of those missions where we lost our only guy out of Shaw. He was out of the uh, 17th squadron. Was a, he had been a 38 FAPE and went lost wingman on the stupid uh, radial to an arc approach that they had. And so when they, when his lead made the right-hand turn to go from the radial to the arc, this kid lost sight and rejoined on an oil derrick light, thinking, mm. it was a, thinking it was a wingtip light, I think. Oh crap! So it wasn't enemy fire. It was just a no. Yeah, we had one guy in our squadron that uh, lost an engine. Was not due to enemy fire. That was um, it's funny. We just had a reunion down at Shaw and got spent a lot of time with one of our maintenance guys, one of our crew chiefs, and he he could have told me, he could have told us right now exactly which what the issue was. A compressor ring that on that engine that had that ended up being replaced and we lost two jets out of our squadron to that issue one of them was right after takeoff a young lieutenant named richie setzer bailed out he was fine and the other one was spike thomas who was a a all-american football player um at the academy ended up ended up in iraq and when they picked him up they were shooting iraqis all around him to get him out wow a true so, combat star mission for him. Wow. Yeah, and it shouldn't have been. It was one of those where, well, his wingman was up trying to coordinate the SAR and the, and the SAR commander wouldn't launch because they hadn't heard from Spike. And Spike goes, well, duh, no shit. He's in a, <laughs> he's in a desert. <laughs> he's in between sand dunes in the desert. His radio doesn't go that far, but I'm telling you right now, I'm talking to him. Yeah. So it took like two hours to get the SAR guys to launch because unlike one, you know, they wanted to do different than they did Vietnam where they were losing guys heading up to find crew members who weren't really there or who were, had already been picked up or who, so the communications, they were really adamant about having comms, but so it worked out. Thank goodness. Now I understand from a, a friend of our mutual friend of ours that you, uh, you were suffering f- some physical pain during that whole adventure um, with your back. You yeah, you know, that? like most most fighter pilots who pull a lot of G's, my C five, C six, C seven got a little disoriented, and at one point, I uh, in the middle of all that, I uh, I end up uh, flat on my back for a couple of days doing some opioids. So I. But- I was briefing one morning, the wing commander comes up to me, he goes, Raj, I was briefing like a 
a 30 ship package and it was like, I don't know, second week of the war and we ended up, the 30 ship ended up getting canceled and, and we went out scud hunting. That's about the time they started rolling the scuds out and we're concerned they're going to aim them towards Israel. And that was their intent. Yeah. Uh, so we, we broke up into eight ships and four ships and uh, went out looking for scuds. But uh, that was the first and on the way back from that mission, I told my wingman, I said, you know, I think I may, or my number three, I said, I think uh, I might be hypoxic, but I don't think I am. I just don't have any feeling in my left arm, my left hand. Oh, no. I, I said, I can make the throttle move. It, it, it moves, it works, but I can't feel anything. It's all numb. And um, I had a hung rack that I had to get rid of out over the Gulf. Um, so that all worked well. He kept an eye on me, landed, the flight doc met me, and he goes, I know exactly what's wrong. And he tried to manipulate my neck a little bit. And that helped, but I, I was, it was unfortunate that the inflammation had gotten to a point where I, I just needed to give it a, give it a rest. Cause you know, between breaking for, you know, missiles and guns and things like that, um, it, it just gotten kind of worn out. So well, I, but I, I think, I think what the, what I want the crowd to understand when I listen to this is, you still kept flying, even though you're under pain. You, well, I, doing I did. I did for a couple of days, and yeah. then um, then they grounded me because I I couldn't move. I it got to a point where it's like someone takes a knife, th- throws it under your shoulder blade, and says, "I'm twisting this. How do you how do you like it?" But I guess and, I the point there. There's a difference between voluntarily grounding yourself because of uh, inconvenience. And being grounded by the flight surgeon because it's it's obvious you can't keep going, but that right. the will and the determination to keep going through through a severe uh, situation, I, I I admire that. I'm very impressed with that. Well, the the other thing that happened, I think, that surprised a couple of people, and maybe this is what you heard and and got mixed up with this, but uh, my dad was dying of a brain tumor, and we were all in uh, Abu Dhabi which it changed a lot since that time. Cause I got to fly over there with United, but we we're in Abu Dhabi for Thanksgiving. We got like four days off. Uh, and the end of the, the night of the first day, I got a phone call from the Red Cross. Said, if you want to see your dad alive again, you better come home now. Wow. So, so I got a red Red Cross ticket back to New York uh, to see my dad. And as it turned out, he had been in the hospital and I had a, <laughs> father of a buddy that lived down the street who had been in world war ii yeah. uh he, he was somebody uh i didn't to be honest with you i didn't really know he'd ever been in world war ii because uh, he'd never talk about it uh, but he was very very involved in the red cross and taking care of you know th- throughout vietnam uh local kids and stuff and he really wanted me to be home to see my dad because he said, Roger's going to end up in this war and something's going to happen to his dad. And, and that's not good. Yeah. So I got home and it worked out great, but uh, there are a few people taking bets with, uh, with our good friend, Greg, that you'll never see Roger again. And Greg's bet response was, well, you obviously don't know Roger very well. Yeah. Um, and I got back. It wasn't easy getting back, but I got back. But yeah. uh, so anyway, yeah. So maybe that, that was part of it. So, but yeah, so I was grounded, and I ended up being on the 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 pilot member of the safety board when our our young friend from the seventeenth uh, met his demise, and that was that wasn't fun. No, those are those are not fun at all. 
Yeah, man, I I gotta uh, just share with you. I, I also had to deal with my father at the end of his life, and it's it's one of those things. It's it's really a hard to go through, but it, when it's all said and done, you're you're glad you did what you could because you don't right. want to thing in a tank uh, and wish you'd done more later. It's it, you just you persevere through that stuff. It's really tough. Well, I was always thankful that I got to go back thanks to uh, uh, my my buddy's dad. And I don't think I knew the whole story till last summer I was up visiting and spent a couple of nights with his sister, the daughter of this, of this gentleman. And, and her husband told me the story. He said, I said, well, I knew uh, that, that your father-in-law was key to my getting back. I didn't know. I thought he personally thought dad was dying. He goes, oh, no, he knew what was going on. He just wanted you to be able to come back and see your dad. And he didn't expect you to stay there. And, I, and my dad and I had a couple, you know, I, I praise God that I was able to be there and have the discussions we had. You know, <laughs> dad, what do you want me to do? I can stay here and be take care, help take care, you know, help mom deal with this. So um, he goes, well, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go back and do your duty. I said, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> That's great. That's so, great. And but, then, so the war ends and you come back to the training command. Is that right? Yeah, we came back and that was about the time uh, the Clinton administration had decided there should not be more than uh, two field grade officers in any squadron. Okay. And by the time I got back, I was the third field grade officer in the ops office. I was a uh, there was an ops officer and assistant ops officer, and, and I was another assistant ops officer. So I had been a flight commander uh, in, in the desert. So um, Porky had left the desert early to go be in charge of the fighter shop at NPC. So I called him and asked him if he had a shot. He'd go, oh, man, just last week I filled the F-16 slot. I go, oh, man. So he goes, but I know General Ashey is looking for fighter guys at air training command and you could still fly t-38s on the staff i go oh that doesn't sound ugly (laughs) so long story short yeah i went to randolph in san antonio to be part of uh air education and training command instead of going to langley and doing that command you know the staff job there like everybody else and uh i don't know week before i got there joe ashley had canceled uh staff flying so i never did get to fly the t-38 again (laughs) while there I got a couple, I got a couple backseat rides going out to different bases and stuff as a staff guy, but yep. So then I did, I was only there for just a little over two years where I got picked up by the return to fly board and went, came here to Richmond, Virginia to be, uh, the RAF sob is what they call it. Lovingly, the regular air force, son of a bitch, the, <laughs> the air force calls them liaison officers. So we we're at that time. You know, these youngsters won't appreciate it, but back in those days, um, guard units and reserve units did not have the kind of experience they have now. They were, you know, if they got to go to a reg flag once every other year, that was pretty amazing. And they weren't deployed all the time like they are now. So they were just flying clubs. They had guys with a lot of experience flying jets. Uh, the Virginia guys, however, had just transitioned from the A-7 to the F-16. So my primary person was help. A reason for being here was to help finish that transition. And, uh, a great group of guys. I was fortunate to be here. I loved it. So I stayed with them until, uh, I retired and went to United. And so you, you retired at 20 
This right. This was Lieutenant Colonel, right? Yes. And and the United thing must have been the timing was good? Timing was good. You know, it's a good thing about being in a guard unit. You got all kinds of guys, FedEx guys, American guys, Delta guys, uh, what was before uh, the guys up in uh, Minneapolis, uh, nor, um, West. Northwest Airlines. Yeah, Northwest Airlines. So I, I interviewed with Northwest. Um, I, or I took the test with Northwest. I, I didn't pass the MNNPI. <laughs> okay. They were looking for guys who wanted to be, not be leaders. And I, so I answered the questions wrong, I guess. <laughs> oh, um, and then you did that for 25 years. Is that right? 23. 20, wow. So how, how, how was that? Any, any exciting adventures in the, uh, United Airline world? Where, where did you fly? Yeah, I, my first year, my first six months, I was a engineer on 727s. I did that on purpose so that I could try to figure out what a single seat fighter pilot was going to do. <laughs> flying with other guys. So I figured I could sit in the back, uh, run the engineer's panel and kind of watch and see how it was supposed to be done. So they, it was an education, but I decided I couldn't stand anymore. And I, I went to an Airbus, flew Airbuses for, uh, let's see, till 2000. So that would have been about three years. Uh, and then got a bid to the 777. Um, I was commuting from San Antonio to California, to Los Angeles. And then I got a bid to fly 777s out of Dulles. And we moved back here to Virginia. And did you fly to Pond? Did you fly international? Yeah, I did. Uh, the triple sevens out of Dallas had pretty much a great, uh, great city pairs. We did all the capitals in Europe, um, as well as Kuwait, as well as uh, Bahrain and Doha, and we did Beijing, uh, Tokyo, uh, Hawaii. So. Uh, Singapore. So I got to fly a lot. And then my last year I flew on the 787 just because uh, it was a, a bid failure. <laughs> we lost Beijing to the 787. And I said, oh, I'm going to bid the 787. So I keep going back to Beijing. And I put the bid in. And about eight months later, someone walking up, someone goes, hey, congratulations, Sparky. I go, what, what are you talking about? Your bid came in. You're going to go fly a 787. I go, what bid? I said, oh, yeah, I did, I did put one of those in a while ago. Oh, crap, I forgot to take it out. So I said, well, I, they can't train me. I got less than a year. I go, no, no, those rules change with the last contract. They, you got a month, you'll train. <laughs> so <laughs> I went and trained and spent the last uh, 11 months flying a 787, which is cool. I enjoyed it. It was a great airplane. Well, that's good. Uh, it's no battery problems and no uh, – <laughs> I, I, I live up here real close to where they build those, and it's kind of a yeah. story. The most about- – the most exciting thing I can say about my airline flying had nothing to do with the airplane or flying it. Uh, it would have been just dealing with the people in the back. Sure. Now, did you uh, ever have any close call? In uh, airlines? Any, any, any flying. Yeah. An SA-8 almost take me out over, uh, over Iraq. Um, we had my wingman had a, a board shortly after takeoff with a generator issue, so we went up with a three ship. Got tasked uh, 
Uh, this was probably before before the army, before the ground war had started. We were trying to mop up areas of resistance. So we had Mark Welch's guys were flying fast facts, and they had uh, um, GPS capability stuff. So they we all had maps and coordinates, and they would try to get us lined up and. We had overflown a Zeus 23-4. Um, it came up. It popped up on all three of us in the raw, and I saw it as we were flying over it about, at about 20,000 feet. So yeah. I told my wingman we're going to – we set up a circle, and I, I decided to go down out of the circle and, uh, and light him up. So I succeeded in lighting him up, but – as I was pulling off, I got lit up by an SA-8, but I didn't see the raw. I was too busy, probably, uh, and I was off. I had been trying to coordinate. Everything had to go through ABCCC, so I was off uh, UHF comms with my flight uh, to coordinate with, with ABCCC. I had some problems with that, so I went to their VHF rig. So now I'm, I don't have any comms with my flight, and they're telling me to break on VHF, and finally uh, my Number three guy calls me on guard and tells me to break right. So I break right, uh, and a missile flashes by. It turns out it was an SA-8, but it flashed by, and, and the, the fuse, my break was just perfectly timed. Um, and, and, you know, I think it was just the hand of God. And I, as I broke, the missile flew by, and because of the break the, and the fusing, um, it it detonated beyond me and typically they f they fire eights in pairs the second one my my wingman tells me went vertical and when it came down it lost me it basically came down and unguided and hit the dirt okay so, so yeah you got lucky twice wow yeah well yeah. That's so that's probably the closest closest i had we did have one other exciting thing we we had to go below the weather to a-10s have been beaten up on a couple of tanks that had some of our guys holed up. There was uh, five Iraqi tanks, T-72s, and um, the A-10 guys had taken out two. There were three left, and they were out of 30-millimeter and rockets and everything. All they had, they had Willie Pete left. So, and the weather was like 500 overcast. So, we were in a stack of about, um, I don't know, probably about four or five four ships um, in the weather and talking to ABC triple C. And I was the first guy, the last guy on station and a ABC triple AB triple C picked me, my four ship because we had the most gas. <laughs> so we were, we coordinated, went, went down, got, went into radar trail, got down below the weather and I mean, it was a little skosh, but we did. And, but, and the other thing was we all had CBU 87s. So, long story short, we took out three tanks with the help of Willie Pete marking by the A-10 guys. Wow. Well, Roger, I thank you for this. This is this is great. The anything else you want to add to the uh, to the finale? Well, in light of you know talking to these youngsters, and I think they probably don't give a flying two pennies for old guys like me and you, but. Um, I would commend them for their willingness to be where they are. I'll wish them well and uh, God bless their endeavors. And I hope they have uh, 
great careers, but it's not about a career. It's about serving your country.